Are we here? Welcome to What the F is Going On in Latin America and the Caribbean, Code Pink's weekly YouTube program of hot news out of the region. In partnership with Friends of Latin America, Massachusetts Peace Action, and Task Force on the Americas, we broadcast generally every Wednesday, 4.30 p.m. Pacific, 7.30 p.m. Eastern on Code Pink YouTube Live. Uh, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and as of today, you can find us on our own Telegram channel. So uh, today's episode, everyone, is Colombia's presidential elections moved to a second round. And I'm really, really excited and happy for all of you to meet Raul Burbano. Uh, he is the executive director of Common Frontiers, which is based in Toronto. And he was uh, the trip leader of the delegation to Colombia that I was supposed to join last week. And we all talked about why I was not able to join that delegation last week. So this week you get to meet the trip leader and we're gonna talk a little bit about um, what the delegation saw and experienced and then get into some specifics uh, of the 29th, uh, Sunday the 29th, election day. And then uh, what possibilities lie ahead for the second round elections on June 19th. So before I have you meet Raul, I wanna um, just give all of you a, a quick summary of what happened on Sunday. So two anti-establishment candidates, Gustavo Petro, a centrist, I think what a lot of us would call centrist in Colombia, he's referred to as a leftist. I think Raul would agree he's anything, you know, one step to the left of center is leftist in Colombia right now. <laughs> with the current political context. Absolutely. So he being a, a centrist for most of us um, and Rodolfo Hernandez, a right-wing populist, the two of them captured the two top spots in Colombia's presidential election on May 29, delivering a stunning blow to Colombia's dominant conservative political class. The two men will compete in a runoff election on June 19 that is shaping up to be one of the most consequential in the country's history. At stake is the country's future economic vision, the restoration of democratic integrity, and the livelihood of millions of people pushed into poverty during the pandemic, particularly women and children. And Raul, that's something I'd really like us to address, that those two, the women and children. Um, with more than 99% of the ballots counted on Sunday evening, Petro received more than 40% of the vote, while Mr. Hernandez received just over 28%. Hernandez beat by more than four percentage points the conservative establishment candidate, Federico Gutierrez, who had been polling in second place until the 29th. So Hernandez's unexpected second place victory perhaps shows a nation hungry to elect anyone who is not represented by the country's mainstream conservative leaders. And if Gustavo Petro ultimately wins in the second round on the 19th of June, it would mark a watershed moment for one of the most politically conservative societies in Latin America. So with that, I'd like all of you to meet Raul Burbano, my friend and um, longtime solidarity um partner venezuela specifically now colombia honduras as well so welcome raul raul by the way is talking to us from bogota this evening everyone so he is just wrapping up things for the delegation so thank you so much for joining us no thank you for having me Terry. it's a pleasure as, as i said i always watch the show you always have excellent guests and i learn a lot well, you're one of them <laughs> here you are 
So Roel, why don't you tell us a little bit, tell us a little bit about Common Frontiers so that um, our guests know what, you, what you've done for years. And, um, and I just wanna share your work with everyone because it's very, it's really important and very impressive what your organization does. Sure. So I'm the program director at Common Frontiers, which is a, a national network of, that brings together labor, ecumenical organizations, human rights organizations uh, that do work uh, specifically in solidarity with Latin America. It was born about 20 some odd years ago against the fight against uh, the uh, NAFTA, uh, you know, version one, uh, you know, built the, tri the tri-national groups, Canada, US, Mexico, and tried to, you know, do some analysis around the impact of that. And so, you know, over the years, we've been focusing on human rights, labor rights, and of course, democracy over the last little while in terms of how important that is in the region. So, you know, the labor movement plays a strong role within Common Frontiers, and we're, you know, very happy to have their support. So Can you I hear me okay? To, oh, no, uh, hold on a second. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I think my mic came loose. Okay. And so, I mean, I, maybe I'll just start in terms of, you know, Common Frontiers has been doing a lot of work uh, around Colombia for probably, you know, about a decade, uh, along with the labor movement and, and the civil society in Colombia. And so over, over, during the, the electoral process, uh, you know, over the last few six months, whether it's the legislative elections or, or the uh, presidential elections, uh, you know, Colombians uh, living abroad, especially in, in Canada, have been mobilizing quite strongly to organize, uh, to ensure and to provide, make sure that the electoral process, at least in Canada, where many of us live, is, is fair, transparent. So that kind of you know, inspired some of us and we heeded the call of civil society in Latin America to support the democratic process uh, in Colombia. So we organized a delegation and I would be remiss if I didn't just mention, you know, we had, you know, we wouldn't be able to have done the delegation without the sponsorship and financial support of the Public Service Alliance of Canada, which is the Social Justice Fund, the Steelworkers, the Humanity Fund, the British Columbia Teachers Federation, uh, the British Columbia General Employees Union, the, the Canadian Postal Workers, and the Coalition of Trade, uh, Black Trade Unionists uh, in Canada. They all really helped us uh, to get things done uh, in Colombia. So it was a coalition, a beautiful coalition of solidarity and labor. Absolutely, yes, it was wonderful. So let's, um, so this is one of the reasons why I so wanted to travel with you <laughs> and, and uh, join your delegation and, and did and just couldn't ultimately um, get into the, into the country. But so let's talk about the itinerary, what, what all of you saw and did, who you met with in the run-up to the election and how that set the stage for election day. Sure, so the, the main cities that we visited we were in Bogota, Cali, and in Buenaventura. And Buenaventura is where we were uh, observing the vote. Our goal was really to come to Colombia and hear, listen, and learn from Colombian civil society uh, around the situation that, that's taking place from an electoral process. Obviously, you know, when, when you're going for the electoral process, it's important to have a transparent, uh, you know, efficient uh, electoral day process, the day of. But it's also really important to understand the context in which elections are taking place. And that's where we had a lot of concern based on what, you know, the work that we've been doing in Colombia and what we've heard from partners in terms of the egregious human rights situation, the economic crisis, uh, you know, corruption, impunity, the criminalization of labor leaders, 
uh, indigenous communities, environmental uh, organizers. So all that obviously culminated in us coming down to Colombia. So one of the things we did, for example, while we were in Bogota, we organized a forum uh, bringing together you know, indigenous, indigenous organizations, representatives like ONIC, labor organizations from USO, the CUT, uh, human rights organizations, campesino organizations, and other uh, electoral observers from MOWI, which was the, I guess, the, the, the Colombian electoral observer coalition, uh, members from the European Parliament, uh, uh, folks from, um, you know, other, other organizations, electoral observer missions, just to, just a dialogue to share, to hear what we, you know, what we've all been kind of uh, seen. And, you know, again, for us, it was really important to take in a lot of what we heard. And, it, you know, unfortunately, a lot of what we heard was very similar to what we've been hearing for a while, which is, you know, there's a lot of intimidation, there's a lot of fear. The, uh, the electoral process has made the situation worse. You know, the, the situation in Colombia has been critical for a long time. It's not unique, but the electoral process obviously sort of has augmented the, you know, the criminalization of activists, uh, violence, uh, threats, and so, you know, people were sharing that with us uh, and saying that, you know, anything they could do to, you know, guard the vote, to safeguard the democracy, you know, that was going to be their focus for the next little while. So really, that was our goal is really to hear, to listen uh, and get a sense of what, you know, the environment was in Colombia around, you know, the elections. Well, I can tell the audience that the criminalization of activists is a for real thing in and outside of the country. I would argue there's a pretty targeted program to, you know, negate, impede um, international solidarity um, with activists inside Colombia. I think, you know, it's inside and outside as, yeah. um, and it's really terrible inside. And um, so you, um, I don't know, somebody was telling me, uh, maybe it was last week we were talking how, you know, the number of deaths so far this year like 26, that, that's maybe even higher than that, be of, of, of activists, environmental activists, indigenous land rights activists, and um, yeah. LBG, I mean, yeah, all, every, all of it, yeah. Yeah, that's according crazy. to In The Pass, which is you know, a very prestigious human rights organization in Colombia, I think, I mean, the last numbers I've seen are you know, 44 massacres in 2002, we're talking about 158 victims. Uh, I think there were 79 social leaders that have been assassinated you know, just this year alone, uh, you know, 25 ex-combatants, uh, you know. So th this is the situation, which is, you know, it's a human rights crisis, obviously, in Colombia. But if there's also, uh, you know, every time, every chance I get, I, you know, I, I mentioned that Colombia is going through many crises, economic, political, social. And you see it just walking down the street, walking down, you know, downtown Bogota. You see the level of poverty, the level of inequality, in a sense, the level of desperation of Colombians in terms of the situation in which they're living in Colombia. I, you know, in my meetings with many folks, many people approach me in confidence, you know, wanting advice, support in terms of how they can get out of the country. Because really people are fearing or concerned uh, for their lives and, and, and for everything they're doing here, especially people who are organizing politically and even just social leaders, right? There's a lot of criminalization of community leaders. We met, for example, with Erica Prieto. She's a Congreso de los Pueblos. Oh. Um, she's a, you know, uh, a community organizer with uh, Congreso de los Pueblos and just her organizing within communities made her a target and she was criminalized by the judicial system in Colombia. But you know what was so concerning from, about her story 
was that a lot of the, you know, the, the evidence that was uh, placed against her had been doctored, you know, whether it's pictures and, you know, finally she was released, but of course it's you know, destroyed her whole life. You know, it's made her life very difficult in terms of fear, her family's life. So that's, you know, we wanted to hear directly from victims because obviously we hear numbers, which are, you know, they're, they're, they're scary in terms of numbers, but when you hear directly from victims and they're telling you their story and how the, the state in some cases has worked to criminalize them, you know, the judicial system doesn't work correctly. Uh, you know, it's, it is really scary, really scary. And, and I felt quite, you know, very difficult to hear a lot of the testimony and, and you feel a bit impotent because really there isn't much that you can do while you're there. That's true. And, you know, for our audience, you're Colombian yourself. So there it was not, you know, you weren't exactly traveling last week in a very secure personal. So your personal yeah. security was at threat as well. So, you know, absolutely. Even yeah. even more bigger gold star for you taking everyone. <laughs> so the but the you know, the it, it's so it, it is I it is very, very hard to listen to the personal testimony to take that the you know, those that witnessing because it really does put a face on on the violence and and not just a face but a person's life and their family and their friends and the whole like you said you know this woman her whole life was ruined by falsified falsified documents falsified evidence against her and your whole life is ruined she's still alive Absolutely. which a lot a lot of people cannot say unfortunately but it is it's hard i give all of you a lot of credit for for um, you know spending time and studying all of it because it's it's hard for the outside world to really fathom how extensive it is right how extensive every aspect of society one of the things i'm this is sure i don't don't want to leave folks with such a a gloomy picture although it is very difficult in my meetings with everybody and just talking to people and hearing there is a sense of hope though, you know, right? The, yeah. you know, these elections have brought a sense of hope. And, and there was, for a while, I couldn't understand. I was a bit confused because, you know, most of the people I talked to expressed, um, you know, concern with the electoral process, concern that, you know, there could be fraud, but at the same time they had hope. And I was like, yeah. well, you know, if you feel that they might, you know, steal the elections, how can you be hopeful? And then somebody finally explained it to me quite clearly. And they said, you know, my heart has hope and I believe we're going to win. My head tells me, you know, there may be some problems, you know, there might be some fraud. So there's sort of that dichotomy between the heart and the mind, uh, you know, the intellect. But clearly, Colombians at this point are, are, are there's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tipping point, right? There's a crossroads yeah. mm-hmm. and there is a lot of hope. And, and I guess, the, you know, the, the challenge is going to be is there change will come, the, the, irrelevant of which of the candidates is elected, as you mentioned, they're both sort of the, you know, the non-official candidates, they're independents, they, they have a different trajectory from the status quo, uh, one more from the left and one more from the you know, center right. Uh, and, and so in the end, there is going to be change. The question is just, well, what is that change going to look like right. and whether it's going to meet the needs of the majority of Colombians who are so desperately in need? And, and you know, the fear is if it doesn't, that's where like, what, what, what will happen in Colombia? Well, so now there's, I've got this whole list of things I want to ask you now. <laughs> your, your observations are, are, are so wonderful. So, um, so you mentioned that, the, you know, the, you know, the choka, the, the frock is between the heart and the head with voters. People went and voted. 
And, and in many communities, it really was a matter of life and death for a lot of people in particularly in rural communities to, to go vote. Uh, but people voted uh, despite the, you know, the physical and political paradigm they're living in. And that is so wonderful, so wonderful to just take that power that, you know, one of the few things that constitutionally remains in place for people and went and did something with it, you know, and and maybe, you know, the, the real, what we would argue, you know, as the real change agent for the country didn't win the first round, but most, but decidedly won, you know, didn't win outright the first round, but decidedly did win. I mean, 40% to 28% was, you know, that's a, that's a huge statement. So one of the things that is really attractive to people about Gustavo Petro and Francia Marquez who make up the Pacto Historico is that uh, they have a different economic vision and this breaking or alleviating this neoliberal paradigm that Colombians have been living in a really harsh um, neoliberal paradigm, which has dramatically affected the youth in the country. I mean, no access to education, no healthcare, no infrastructure, no jobs, no, I mean, really no nothing, which is, which is in big, big part what ignited the National Paro last year. And so let's talk a little bit about neoliberalism and what uh, a potential uh, uh, Petro presidency could look like. Well, we're talking about hope and positive. Let's stay with yeah. <laughs> Let's stay with that. Well, you know, many folks in, in, in the campaign and the pact that we talked to, you know, they made it clear. And I, and I think people were, were quite focused that they, they consider this would be, if they would win, it would be a transitional government because they're under no illusion that they will be able to transform the country in four years. Uh, and the hope for many people is that if only, you know, if, if the Pacto can do a small portion of what it professes that it will do, it would have a humongous impact. For example, you know, the proposed tax increase on the 4,000 wealthiest Colombians, right? The plan uh, to halt new oil exploration in an effort to wean the country away from sort of the extractive industry and move to a, you know, a more you know, ecological, environmentally uh, sustainable uh, eco- economy, uh, pension reform, uh, agrarian reform, those things, if you could do you know, half of those, it would have a significant impact on Colombians, especially Colombians, obviously, in the lower stratus and, and you know, women, single mothers, youth, as you mentioned. Uh, those are key things that I, I think, and that's why I've seen a lot of young people at, you know, at the events, at the rallies, uh, you know, at the polling stations. Although I must admit, I was surprised that there weren't as many people out as I had expected. So I had I participated in elections in other countries, uh, for example, in Venezuela, just to compare. And in Venezuela, people are lined up way before the polls open. There's huge queues. Uh, in yeah. Colombia, I didn't see that. And I really expected a lot more. And when we voted, when we uh, visited different voting sites, uh, in Buenaventura, and we would ask, you know, the, the, the folks who are who are in charge of the, the table, not the tables, but the voting centers, they'd come out and talk to us, and they would tell us, you know, the, the youth haven't come out yet. It was around, you know, 11 o'clock. The youth haven't come out yet. And they're like, well, don't worry, they usually come out later, right? They sleep in a little bit, uh, they come a little bit later. <laughs> yeah. That last hour. 
<laughs> yeah, but it did, you know, it, that I think is a bit of a challenge. It didn't materialize. And I, I do mm -hmm. think there might have been a complacency that everybody just assumed we're going to win this. So there's no, you know, we don't, mm -hmm. we don't need to worry. And so I think that is going to be a challenge for, for Petro and Francia Marquez in terms of ensuring that people get out early to vote. I, I mean, the Colombian electoral process, I mean, in my opinion, isn't the strongest. For example, you know, they open eight to four. Uh, it doesn't give people often enough time to vote, especially if people are coming out from the rural areas, right? Yeah. Uh, they have mm -hmm. to travel a distance. So, you know, one of our recommendations, for example, was that it should, you know, the voting center should be open at least at 8 p.m. And people in the lineup, if when the voting center closes, should be allowed to continue, you know, to continue to vote if they're in the lineup. In Colombia, only if they have your ID and you're about to vote are the only people that can vote. So there could be a lot of people in the lineup, but they won't, wouldn't be able to vote, which... You know, it's, it's not a it's not a good sign for the for a democracy when it's not you know trying to bring in as much of the, the voting population as possible. Well, this is you know this is interesting, and I had asked a number of people. Maybe I even asked you know you and your delegation on Sunday uh, that the polls close at four, and in many countries, and you and I have observed elections, you know, multiple countries throughout Latin America and the Caribbean. If you're in line whether the poll closes at three or five or 9 p.m., whatever. If you are in line before the polling center closes, you can vote. You cannot get in line at the close. But if yeah. you, are, if you are, are already in line, the poll stays open until everybody in the line has voted. And so in Colombia, that is not the case. And boy, that may very well- That's not count. the case. Yeah, four o'clock on a Sunday is not very late. Unless, That's unless they have your ID. Yeah. So unless you've like submitted your ID, which would be like the next voter, then that's right. the only person that has the right to vote. So that is a challenge. Wow, and I just, you know, although I, I would have to say, I don't think that was an issue, at least from what I witnessed in Buena Ventura, maybe in other places it was different because there weren't, there weren't huge lineups, as I mentioned, you know, it was definitely, you know, flowing and people were going in and out and people were able mm -hmm. to access the voting uh, uh, centers that we were at. Uh, you know, people came out and, of course, always complained about irregularities, uh, lack of testicles at the table, yeah. uh, you, you, know, uh, you know, voter identification that wasn't, you know, they're supposed to vote here, but they're supposed to vote somewhere else. So, I, I, you know, I think those are, you know, regular irregularities that you hear uh, in polling stations. But we just heard a lot from other people when we had met around, you know, a lot of the issues that people fear. Like, for example, we met with some communities that had recently been displaced in Buenaventura. And obviously, displaced communities can't go back to their place to vote, right, for, for fear of violence and, and, and repercussions. So those kind of issues where communities who are displaced can't really vote, right? Uh, you know, I don't think there's enough being done to support that or to, you know, make it easier for, for them to participate in the electoral process. And I think in some cases, it, it probably benefits the status quo for them not to vote. No, exactly. Yeah. Now, how... And, and I'm sorry, did I lose well, you? No, no, okay, no. so let's talk about uh, Buenaventura because the delegation was specifically asked by the, by the local community that you, that you observe there. And why was that? What's you, what was the request? Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, that area of Buenaventura, there's a lot of poverty. Uh, this is on the coast, of, the Caribbean yeah, coast. Absolutely. For, for, our, for our audience. 
And so, you know, working with Afro-Colombian communities from mm. the communities that organized the Paro, I think it was in 2016, uh, you know, they really wanted support and ensure that international observers were there. So we weren't the only ones there. I think there were uh, U.S. observers who were there. There were folks from Catalonia, Catalo mm. Catalonia that were there as well, observing the election. So we kind of divided up amongst ourselves in terms of supporting uh, the electoral vote. So there is a lot of concern in that area of, of vote buying, of you know, uh, intimidation. And, and that's one of the main reasons why we, we chose to go there on, you know, the request of the you know, Afro-Columbian communities who we've been working with for a while. Wow, so, so one of the, um, oh gosh, I thought I have wanted to ask about the voting proper, but let's go back to that in a minute. One of the things um, we talked about a few minutes ago was, should there be a facto historical win in this, it would be a, a transitional government. So you're looking at a government that would basically spend four years dismantling a system that has failed the majority of society. And then you would need successive administrations to start gradually going forward. I think some, someone had mentioned it would take conceivably 14 years to undo, yeah. undo and then and then, and then for a full transition, and I think probably, I think that was a full transition to a, a more socialized um, economy and state. But you would see, you would see, I think, as you mentioned, just beginning a dismantling of the existing would be beneficial. I mean, that would be an immediate benefit, I would think. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I know Petra has stated or the campaign has stated that they would declare a state of emergency, like economic emergency mm. to, to address the widespread, you know, hunger that the country uh -huh. is experiencing, God. lack of access to food. So, you know, as you mentioned from, from the beginning, you know, the, the campaign is, is not a radical left uh, campaign. They're, they're not looking to nationalize or, or do it, you know, this, they're not looking to dismantle the capitalist system. Uh, however, it's important to note that the reality, it would really be, you know, beneficial to Colombian civil society if things, you know, as simple, well, not as simple as, but as important as a pension, right, for, yeah. for people, yeah. right, access to education, yeah. right? Those, those things, you know, we can't discount them, although, you know, that we sometimes, you know, in the North, we get sort of, oh, you know, wish you could have been, you know, challenging capital much more. Uh, you know, it's important that those do have, you know, ramifications for poor people uh, in, in Colombia. I mean, and even from a foreign policy perspective, I mean, uh, Petro has mentioned that he would definitely, you know, he's not a big supporter of Venezuela, but he would reestablish economic relations with Venezuela because obviously the border economic necessity there is big. So even just, you know, simple things like that, in my opinion, would make a big difference, you know, internally and probably geopolitically yes. in, in terms of a progressive, yeah. you know, policies. You know, it kind of reminds me a little bit of, you know, sort of Lula policies, right? In, mm -hmm. in Brazil, mm -hmm. like Bolsa de la Familia, you know, in Canada, we would see them as more sort of social welfare policies of helping the poor, you know, kind of alleviate the immediate needs. And then, you, you know, you, you can move on to start looking at more of the structural things, which might be, you know, in future governments. But it's a, yeah, it's, a, it's an evolutionary thing. And you don't just, I mean, you don't just change the form of economy overnight in any, any country. I mean, I guess unless you have something, you know, a hot revolution, but even then you still how it is still evolutionary. And so did I lose you? 
Oh. No, not at all. Okay, I thought I thought my screen froze. Sorry, I thought my Wi-Fi. Um... Yeah, you froze a little bit, but that's okay. okay. <laughs> so, can let can we talk a little bit specifically about what you saw on election day, like? Just for our audience, like what the technical voting process is for people who have observed elections before, how, you know, when someone arrives at a poll or even before, how they register and just the whole technical process. You know, you and I have been in Venezuela numerous times and, you know, it's so clean and so efficient and it's, it's almost impossible to believe that the United States doesn't want to replicate <laughs> I mean, it's. So what is it like in Colombia? Since I didn't get to see it, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, you know, and I, I should clarify. So we weren't an official uh, electoral observers, you know, state sanctioned. So we didn't enter any of the voting centers per se. Our work was really outside, right. uh, talking to people, interviewing people, you know, hearing, you know, documenting, you know, any kind of irregularities, irregularities that people would share with us. So, you know, we, you know, the voting process from what I understand in Columbia, I, as I said, I wasn't inside any of the voting centers, is pretty standard in terms of, you know, you go in and there is, there is a, 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 like, I guess, a biometric to ensure that you're supposed to be at what table you're supposed to be at, and then you present your card, you vote, and then you do the ink on your finger. So it's kind of pretty standard from that perspective. So uh, you know, I, little fraud, unless there's something actually technical manipulation of the voting machines themselves, which I've seen some social media comments about that the voting machines, the tallying, the national tallying, when everything goes from the polling center, you know, gets the data gets sent, that the national count was capped at 40% for, for Petro and Francia Marquez. Have you heard that? I mean, I've seen that on social media in quite a few places, interesting places, actually, left and right places. Yeah, I think the same as you. I mean, I've seen, I've heard it on social media. Uh, I mean, as you, as I mentioned, we weren't witness to anything like that. Uh, most of our work was really just documenting and hearing irregularities from folks. Uh, but I mean, as I'm sure you know, and probably most of your least listeners who have been following Colombia know quite well that, you know, there were, there was about half a million votes for for the petrol campaign, you know, that were just, you know, that were uncovered in the legislative election. So there is yes. clearly issues yeah. with the electoral process, uh, the software, you know, many, many uh, different political parties that we met with, including both right and you know, right and left, expressed concerns in terms of the, the inability to audit the software mm -hmm. uh, and make sure that it wasn't being you know, utilized in any nefarious way. So there has been a lot of, you know, uh, comments and, 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 and uh, issues, and, and people have made this clear. We met with folks in the labor movement, and it, it's funny because when you hear when you keep hearing the same thing over and over in different places, you start to wonder if this is true. Uh, and they mentioned to us that you know companies are forcing employees to work uh, to vote a certain way, and uh, you know members of, of uh, the CUT, for example, said they were going to send me a letter that they, that they had access to from you know I guess one of their employees, where you know it's made pretty clear who they. Who employees have to vote, or or somehow influencing that vote, right? So it, there's clear that there is a lot of, you know, manipulation that's going on. Whether people can, you know, actually access the voting centers, as 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 you probably aware, there was a you know a a, a, a sort of a paramilitary paro not too long ago in the northern part of the country, mm -hmm. which basically you know they could you know people are are afraid in many places yeah. to go and vote. Yeah. 
So those are the ways I think often that, you know, fraud takes place. People don't have access to it, displaced people. And then there is sort of, you know, the, the more of the, the technical stuff that happens uh, during the electoral process. Let's talk about the displaced people quickly. Are they, uh, and specifically, in, in, you know, around Buenaventura, you said there were communities displaced. Are they displaced by the government? Are they displaced by illegal drug trafficking? Do they choose to leave because it's too violent? Are they physically pushed off the land by state, state or illegal? Sure. All of yeah. all of the above. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you know most of the above. Absolutely, is correct. Paramilitaries, you know, drug trafficking, uh, you know, you know, illegal armed groups across the country have been displaced. I mean. It's not new, unfortunately. Colombia has, you know, some of the highest displaced uh, people internally, in, you know, in the world. So people are continuously displaced, and you know, they, they have nowhere to go, right? So yeah. they're moving from city to city. They're trying to survive, uh, living sort of in the margins of, of uh, society. They don't have any. There's no support, you know, very little support from the government, right? So it is a huge challenge for communities. I mean, I think that would have a significant impact. You know, displaced people don't really have the ability to participate in the electoral process. And I think that is something that should be highly concerning to the Colombian government and to all political sort of organ entities in Colombia. Well, you basically become like uh, a non-person at that point. You're a non-citizen. A non you have no, you're not on any sort of state registry. You know, no permanent address, no place to, uh, you know, to file to vote. You have no, well, you're well, kind of a non-person Technically, you're supposed to go vote in the city you're registered in, but how can, you can't go back yeah. to that city you've been displaced, right? right. So that's, yeah. that's, that's a huge issue. And I mean, we met with a community in Buenaventura uh, who talked about the issue. Uh, and I mean, it's common. It's not uncommon. It wasn't unique. And I think that's that definitely, I think, has a humongous impact. And it's probably one of the reasons why, you know, Colombian civil society, I mean, it's one of the most unequal societies, as I mentioned. And I think this is one of the reasons why people are, are in desperate need for change, right? Because yeah. the situation in Colombia, just, it just continuously with the pandemic, the inequality, the poverty just continues to get worse. Uh, and it seems that, I mean, unfortunately, you know, Canadian foreign policy and U.S. foreign policy continue to support that type of politics in Colombia. And, you know, there's going to be a big change in, 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 the, in the upcoming election. So it's important that, you know, the, the, the Canadian government and the U.S. government kind of rethink kind of their, the way they're, you know, supporting uh, civil society in Colombia and, you know, those kind of organizations. So I think there needs to be sort of a rethinking in general about Colombia and its place in Latin America and the role, instead of it being a destabilizing type of a force in the region, it needs to be a force for, for good and for, you know, bringing Latin America together, right? Because it really does have that ability to do that. Do you, so as you're talking about U.S. and Canadian, North American foreign policy needing to change, I mean, we are seeing uh, any of us who have spent any amount of time, you know, on the ground in Latin America and the Caribbean, there is a unity and a movement economically, politically, and I would say a unity out of humanitarian um, crisis with the pandemic that has emerged and is growing. And we see this with the pushback to 
Biden's summit of the Americas next week that's supposedly supposed to take all of that, this unity. And so um, Colombia is a NATO uh, global partner. NATO, it's on the Caribbean, it's not on the North American, uh, North Atlantic, but it's a NATO global partner. And, uh, and next door to the east is Venezuela, who's a very strong, who is very strongly allied with um, Russia. Did you see, hear, experience anything, well, even just you personally, because it is your home country, this kind of is a similar, it, it is the same situation we're seeing play out in Europe. It's you know, where you have, you know, Russia against U.S., NATO, right, just across the Caribbean. It's the same thing, same paradigm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Colombia has for decades played a destabilizing role, uh, basically been the United States lapdog, unfortunately, mm-hmm. through militarization uh, in the region, uh, training, you know, uh, you know, other other sort of nefarious organizations, uh, you know, kind of exporting, they call it the, the Colombianization of, you know, militarization in, in other countries. So I do think that, you know, the, the broader geopolitical conflict that's taken place uh, with Russia and Ukraine is definitely going to have an impact in, in, in Colombia, because obviously this has kind of been playing out to some extent in, in Latin America for a while, because Russian investment, Chinese investment, has to some extent displaced U- U.S. And, and Canadian investment in the region. Yeah. And that has been sort of some of the reasons why the United States and Canada have worked quite diligently from a government perspective to you know, marginalize countries like Venezuela, Bolivia, Nicaragua, any country that really doesn't toe the, you know, the, the line, uh, you know, all of a sudden becomes an egregious human rights violator or an anti-democratic uh, country. So. It's definitely, you know, been happening in Latin America, and the fear is just what it can grow to, and hopefully, you know, yeah, exactly it doesn't grow to any kind of military conflict. But you know, the NATO, uh, Colombia's, you know, status in, in NATO as an observer nation is highly concerning. It's something that you know, Colombian civil society would, you know, most by by and large, most would be against, you know, Colombia participating in such a military alliance is unnecessary. Well, it's fascinating to me that I think it was Thursday. Even we heard uh, President Fernandez in uh, in Argentina. Um, I forget what event he was at a state official state event where he flat out said, you know, have to lift the Cuba, six decades of embargo against or blockade against Cuba, and then he did mention, you know, five plus years of economic warfare against Venezuela simply because they have diplomatic differences. I mean. He's never been that overt, particularly Cuba, yes, but Venezuela, not always. He's not always that strong uh, about U.S. policy towards Venezuela. And he was quite overt on Thursday. And so it's really, um, it's fascinating to watch how this is all unfolding. And it's fascinating to me that he said that the Thursday before the the Colombian presidential elections, because the, the Argentines kind of stay quiet. Um, although there were quite a few of them as election observers, um, Sunday the 29th. But I thought that was, a, for, for their government, that was a very strong statement just days before uh, mm-hmm. the elections. And you can see how the rest of the hemisphere, with the exception of North America, Colombia, Honduras has changed or is in the process of changing. You know, 
everybody's kind of trying to preserve the peace, perhaps, and not let things get, uh, you know, exacerbated between Colombia and Venezuela. As you were watching that same scenario play out in Europe, it's very, yeah. yeah. I don't think we talk about that enough. I don't think enough of us in North America really understand what that border really is between Colombia and Venezuela. Absolutely. And as you mentioned, I mean, it has clear implications, Latin America, because, I mean, we hear, you know, regularly from, you know, State Department that Russia, China are meddling in, you know, I heard in Colombian, in these Colombian elections, they're the ones who kind of, you know, control the Venezuelan elections. So they're, you know, that, that sort of theme of like, you know, we need to confront obviously Russia in, in, in Ukraine and in Europe, and we also need to confront them wherever we can economically, politically, and now we're seeing militarily. Yeah. Uh, obviously, it's you know scary, and especially with a country like Colombia, where it's you know with all the U.S. military bases and all the military equipment that Colombia does have. Uh, I mean, it is a country that can, you know, destabilize, which has for a while the region, right? We saw it with you know the Venezuela-Colombia border, where you know there was you know there's skirmishes. There's always you know the, the Colombians, you know, the Colombian government is always trying to undermine the Venezuelan government. That you know, at, at any point, things could have. I think, it, but in my opinion, if it wasn't for the Venezuelan government, Maduro, there probably could have been, you know, a bit of conflict between two countries militarily. Right? I so, agree with you. Yeah, I think they've shown they've taken the high road diplomatically for a very long time, for many, many years now. Yeah, because it, yeah, it, it did feel like yeah. Colombia was trying to instigate something, right? But you know, the government right. more of, than uh, once yeah. <laughs> for the U.S. Absolutely. via Colombia. Yeah, for sure. So. Let me just ask you two things real quick before I let you go. One, you voted. You voted in the uh, consulate in Toronto, yes? No, I couldn't because I was in Colombia, so I couldn't vote. Unfortunately. Oh, okay. So I missed my vote, okay. but I did hear, of, you know, so the interesting part is when we were in Bogotá in one meeting, they said that, you know, the voting abroad is very regular and it, it yeah. probably could use, they said to us, uh, international observers. Uh, and it's ironic because when when we when I heard the voting taking place in, for example, Quebec, there are some reports of irregularities. Like I know one person specifically who went to vote, but it said, "Well, you know, you know, you, you, we don't have you on the list." And and he said, "Well, I voted in the last presidential election." They're like, "Well, you have to bring proof of that you voted in those elections." And there was another person in Montreal who went to vote, who was registered in in Montreal or Quebec. And they said, sorry, you're really registered in Ontario, so you can't, you can't vote. So these type oh, wow. of irregularities, which I'm sure is not uncommon in other parts, you know, the exterior is really a problem. And when we met with different political parties, they said, you know, the voting uh, in exterior is, is, is susceptible uh, to manipulation, is susceptible to the influence of, you know, the powers to be in those countries, and it needs to be safeguarded. So I, I think that is one of the reasons why Colombian civil society and the diaspora and abroad has been really incredible in mobilizing to observe, to protect, to make sure that they're at the tables. And I think that is really the only way that, you know, we can ensure that the elections as a whole, and even in Colombia, is with massive participation in terms of safeguarding the vote, of being vigilant. Because, you know, my analysis is that the Petro and his campaign has to win by a large margin in order yes. to sort of have you know you know legitimacy unfortunately because if it is very close you know i fear that you know the opposition or whomever may not accept the results there'll be claims of fraud because everybody's 
throwing fraud around on a regular basis, and it could just create a lot more tensions. Well, this is what we saw. That was what we saw in Honduras in November. Absolutely of um, 2021, and that was the Partido Libre and their coalition, that was the whole objective, was to have massive voter turnout and to win by a large percentage. And unfortunately, I think this is true for center left, left throughout the hemisphere right now, is that there has to be such a large win that it cannot be contested domestically or internationally. And and that does, it does force uh, the creation of political coalitions that don't, you know, that can be somewhat internally, you know, um, contentious going forward um, to run, you know, to govern a country, but so important to have that big win so that it's yeah. uncontested. Yeah. And it's so. also, I mean, it's also, that's why it's very important with, you know, sort of folks like Francia Marquez, the presidential, you know, the vice president who, you know, herself is quite inspirational. She's an Afro-Colombian. Yeah an environmentalist, a single mom, and she sort of represents that, you know, th those nobodies, the others who have been marginalized historically in Colombia. And, and I think she represents that hope for a lot of people. And in and, and my, you know, talking to people, uh, I mean, that's really who had been inspiring quite a lot of Afro-Colombians, young people, but even just, you know, regular, you know, Colombians. It reminded me a little bit about when I was in Bolivia back around in 2009 and 2008 with sort of the reivindication in Bolivia of sort of the poetas and the indigenous, mm. uh, you know, culture in, in, in Colombia, when, when I was here in Bogota and being at the, you know, some of the rallies and some of the events, again, you know, the Afro-Colombian the, the discussion, you know, average Colombians, you know, you know, mixed like myself who, who wouldn't necessarily identify with either or uh, would be, would, were sort of reivindicating the Afro-Colombian indigenous roots that for a long time have been marginalized, right? Uh, yes. and, and really, that is really galvanizing a lot of people uh, in Colombia. And I think that's really important that, you know, we, we you know, reconnect the, the one, those of us who have lost those connections with the Afro-Colombian, the indigenous component of our Colombian history. Wow. It's, well, she is, to me, she's been, she, and I love Gustavo Petro, but for me personally, she, I agree with you. She really is the voice, the, the physical embodiment of the people throughout Colombia who have had no one, you know, directly looking like, who looks physically looks like them and, and represents them economically and politically. I mean, she's, she's just amazing. And the strength and courage it's taken for her to run for office is, is profound. Absolutely. Uh, and yeah. she's been you know, subject to obviously threats, uh, you know, I was here when, when uh, in the uh, park, the park of the, the Los Periodistas, where she had, mm. had a closing campaign, and there was a laser pointed at her uh, near the end of the rally. You know those kind of things, which are yeah. obviously forms of intimidation, violence against political candidates. It, you know those are the kind of things that you know Colombian democratic. It really you know questions Colombian's democratic system when it, it could happen with an impunity, uh, where you know members of the you know army can you know, put out statements that could, you know, dis disparage political candidates, you know, it really, you know, is alarm for concern. And there's nothing that's ever done. There's very little, there's no consequences that's done to, you know, uh, an, an army, uh, you know, leader that would, you know, make those kind of comments against, you know, a particular campaign. Can you hear me?
Hello? Can you hear me? I think we lost Terry. Well, I think that's the end of the podcast. Thank you everyone for participating. Uh, and we'll be in touch. Bye.